Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, January the 28th, 2016, and this is episode 1719 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a, a, a good one for you today because, again, it's all you. It's all about you. That's because this is a listener feedback show. So all of the content actually comes from you guys in the audience, and that makes the show about you. Which should make you like it, because everybody likes to hear about themselves and hear what they're interested in. And if you don't hear enough that you're interested in in shows like this, I have a solution. Tell me what you want to hear. Open up your email program, throw in the email address, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. In the subject line, put TSPC and after that anything you want, and then send me an email about what you want me to answer, what you want me to talk about, what have you. If it's a question or something like that, though, please summarize it in one or two sentences. And then give me details. If it's an article, you know, make a point, a one-sentence point about it. Give me a link. That way I know what I'm looking at. It helps me sort emails faster when you go through the amount that I do. It, you have to develop a system, and sometimes that means stuff that you would have liked to have read gets filtered out just due to time. So if you follow that pattern, it helps me with my pattern recognition do the best I can to scan as many as possible and get as many included as possible in the show. It's also a great idea to interact with me on Facebook through uh, the TSP fan page or even my own home, uh, my own personal page or some of the other groups that we're on out there. I do pick stuff up on Facebook and, and, and put it on the show as part of the feedback. Uh, not so much with Twitter. I kind of use Twitter to let you know it shows up and put some stuff out there, but I don't really, I'm not a power user on Twitter. I, it's not my thing. But uh, email is the overall best way to get in touch with me. Also, comments on the blog. There's no comment that goes on the blog that doesn't also come to me in an email. Therefore, every time you comment on the blog, it's kind of like sending me an email as well. So there is that. With that, before we get to all your feedback and some follow-up from yesterday, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is KnifeKits.com. I really like the entire concept that is KnifeKits.com. I just love it. Because when I start thinking about learning how to make a knife, I start thinking about, okay, I have to start out with this raw piece of metal. I have to beat it in a forge and make it the right thickness or grind it or cut it or all this type of thing. And that's fine. And I think it's where a lot of knife makers want to be able to get to, you know, go and buying an old file for a quarter or something at the flea market turning it into an awesome knife. I've seen people do things like that. But with knife kits, you can focus on the final fit and finish of the handle material, making something custom and unique. And you don't have to learn everything at one time. You can learn that final part 
Uh, or you can actually do your own uh, shaping, cutting, whatever. You can find raw stock material. It's up to you what you want to do. But for a lot of people, I think just getting a kit in the, the, the frame style that they're looking for, choosing their own handle material, finishing themselves, building a sheath for it either on a leather or kydex or any of the other materials that are there, and being able to work with some really cool exotic materials and make something really unique – And being able to get to kind of a starting point first helps them with that pathway down to that skill set development. I'm huge on skill set development, guys. It's one of the biggest, most important things to me in the world. This nation is rapidly devolving into a nation with no hard skills. We need to reinstill hard skills, and making a knife is one way to do that. There's also some other cool stuff there, like making Kydex holsters and things like that. Great project for you to do with your kids. Hey, you guys with scouting groups, what about doing a, a scouting uh, project where every scout makes a knife? It's affordable, and if you need help with what to do, they have books and videos to help you through the entire process. Check them Next out up, today at knifekids.com. Let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1719, because the episode is 1719. Uh, I have <clears throat> professional boxing in the George Foreman Grill. I also have the Age of Liberty in Sweden. I'm going to read that one, but the professional boxing one is really, really interesting. Uh, I'm almost tempted to read them both today, but no, I try to keep the intro short, so you're going to have to read that one for yourself at tspwiki.com. The Age of Liberty in Sweden. Sweden's military power reached its zenith during the Thirty Years' War and has been in decline ever since. They were doing well for a while during the Great Northern War. Great Britain and Poland helped Sweden fight against Russia and its allies. Great Britain and Poland, uh, it was a long war and nations switched sides at various times. This proves the rule that nations don't have friendships, they have interests. And King Charles XII of Sweden was interested in fighting. He was killed last year when a lucky shot hit him and he was as he was inspecting his troops. His kingship was an absolute monarchy. That means he ruled with unrestricted political power. Now that he is gone, the Swedish parliament has taken the opportunity to curtail the power of the monarchy. The king's sister is allowed to take the throne only after she agrees to lesser powers granted by the parliament. This is considered the beginning of the Age of Liberty in Sweden. It will last until 1772, when Gustav III will take advantage of a parliament in chaos and seize power in a coup. <clears throat> My take by Alex Shrugged. They called it the Age of Liberty, but peasants were still peasants, and the idea that they had a say in how the country was run at the time was a pipe dream. They did have some representation in the parliament, but their actual power was insignificant. Until the coup of Gustav III, there was freedom of the press, but that was seen as permissiveness by the nobles. After the coup of censorship was reestablished, freedom of the press did not return until 1810 after the Gustav IV was overthrown. Um, you know, my take by this is this is actually perfect for today's show, which is why I decided to read it for our intro segment, because we're going to talk about the way we allow ourselves to be governed in this nation. And I said that, allow ourselves to be governed, and follow up from some pushback from, um, from, from the gal I played yesterday, Chris Ann Hall. And I got two different types of pushback on that. One was, hey, she's wrong about the Constitution. Maybe. I don't know. We'll we'll look into that later. I'm even going to reach out to Chris Ann Hall and say, hey, here's some, you know, what I consider to be reasonable rebuttals to your assertion that the Constitution says the federal government cannot own land. I also understand what you're saying, and I understand what they're saying. So how do we rationalize these two sides? That That's that's a fair and objectionable way to look at this thing. You You need to be critical when somebody says that the government 
can or cannot do something to the Constitution because it's not always cut and dry, right? As we've learned from many different things. And then the other type of pushback that I got, though, was, well, it doesn't matter because they already took it all away anyway, defeatism. And, you know, it doesn't matter because they rewrote it in the, the courtrooms and the government just does what it wants anyway and what have you. And that is a valid point, but it's not about them, it's about us. And I think that's what we, what I see here in the age of liberty in Sweden, there's this misconception that since the king was a dictator, right, a king would be a perfect example of a dictator, a single person with absolute power. That's a bad thing. So if we have a parliamentary style government, then that's more liberty than a king. Why would you believe that? Why would you believe that? In fact, I mean, you could make a case that it's actually more likely the king would, would govern justly as a dictator than an uncontrolled parliament would govern as a parliament. Here's why. If the king is inherently a good man that wants to do good things, he's probably going to run a pretty decent kingdom. Now, I don't think anybody should be trusted with that much power. Don't get me wrong. But in the end, if a king decides, you know what, I'm not going to do this to people or I'm not going to cut people's heads off because they say something I don't like. And if, if a king actually decides, I want to run my kingdom in a way that, yes, benefits me because I'm in power, but since I'm the king, of course, everything benefits me. So I want to be a good king. He pretty much can if he has absolute power. But you put a parliament together of privileged individuals who have control over a country and they all have a different agenda and goals, then by having to negotiate with each other as to what to do, they all have the things they want, and that becomes forefront, and they actually decide and make decisions based on negotiating with each other about what they want rather than what the people want, as long as the people allow it. Just let that sink in, and the words consent of the governed, until we get to the uh, first segment of today's show. My take by Jack Spirico, but... The more things change, the more they stay the same. They call it the age of liberty, but peasants were still peasants, and the idea that they had any say in how the country was run at the time was a pipe dream. Think about that. Let it burn in real good. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you like the work I do and you want to help support it and you want me to be around forever doing what I do. I could not do this show five days a week and bring you all the other content and videos and stuff that I do Without your support in the Member Support Brigade. It's, it's that important. Uh, it's $50 a year, which is 18.3 cents a, 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 an episode, if you look at it that way. If you were just saying, hey, I think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, I'll join for that reason. But I don't do business that way. I do business in a way where everybody benefits. So I have discounts for you. I have value-added products for you. I have additional content for you. I have every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced and convenient zip files for you. I've got all that good stuff and more at the MSB. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about it there. Okay, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I, uh, I looked at some of the pushback that I got on Facebook and in the comments on the blog about yesterday's episode with with, um, with Chris Ann. And, uh, of course, John Pugliano was the majority of it. But, but, but Chris Ann Hall's assertion that all of this stuff going on in Oregon is just part of a larger problem that the federal government should not be owning land within the states. The states are supposed to be sovereign and own their own land. Okay? And, and, and I think that Chris Ann made a really great point to that. 
there were some people that pointed out there are other components of the Constitution that would infer that the, that the federal government can, in fact, own territories. So what it would come down to is, well, what's a territory? Is a territory a, a piece of land not yet con controlled by the states? And this is a legalistic debate. This is a legalistic debate. And it was one of those things that you could make a case for either way. And then you have to judge which way that case actually plays out. And in the past, the Supreme Court has actually ruled in favor of the federal government. But that's not exactly a surprise. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean in of itself that it's right. Just because the court says something doesn't mean it's right. Many of you would say, well, you know, okay, Obamacare. Okay, for the federal government uh, legislating firearms. Right? The federal government should have, under the Second Amendment, no right whatsoever to legislate, legislate firearms. And, like, the other side of that, though, is, and this is why it would be more repressive in some states and would be better off overall, the states should have absolutely the right to regulate firearms within their state based on their own constitutionality of their own state. That's how the country was formed. There's no doubt about that. That it was only over time that the courts incorporated the Bill of Rights to include the states. Okay, that's, but these are all legalistic things. And, and they're not as important as the psychological component, because we can talk about that, and I'd very much like this country to start talking about those things again. Everybody, the common man on the street in bars and pubs, and not, you're an asshat, you know, or whatever, and just yelling at each other about the way things should be. But actually the first question being, should the government be allowed to do this? Is the government allowed to do this? And if not, what should be done about it? And I'll come back to those questions in a bit, because I want to read uh, some comments by Insidious. And Insidious, uh, if you guys have been around on the blog for a while, you know he's one of our most valuable commenters. This guy's a thinker, and he's put words to things that I wanted to say today that I think he did better than maybe I would do. So I'm just going to read what he has to say. This is probably a terrible place to post uh, this as it's the longest comment thread ever. But on libertarians and anarchists working in government, in my opinion, there's a real role for people that want to encourage change to interact with or enter government positions. Here is the difference, not with the intention of changing the system or the organization, but with the intention of influencing and changing the people within the organization, not with words, but with actions. To quote St. Francis, preach the gospel, and if you must, use words. So what the heck am I talking about? How about if you took some homegrown tomatoes or backyard eggs to your local code enforcement division, maybe nudge them individually toward a little self-sufficiency? Do you think it would have an effect on the way we see, interpret, apply local ordinances? Do you think it would make sense, make it easier to get local ordinances passed or eliminated? Or maybe it's the town council that you target. What I'm suggesting is to is a befriend and co-opt strategy rather than the more common shun and shame that most people seem to be following. Shun and shame straightens the us and them. And the reality is there's just us. Everyone that works for these organizations is an American just like you are, under the subject to the same oppression and repression that you are. You can argue that they prefer chains or whatever, but if they're afraid of leaving the cage, if, if they're afraid, if leaving the cage scares them, It's not an effective strategy to throw rocks at them and call them a coward for not wanting to be free. If you have a scared animal inside a cage, you have to soothe it and bait it. Little tastes of delicious freedom until it comes out. 
when it finally leaves the cage, even for a moment, you have to continue to soothe it until it learns that freedom, even if it is less safe, is nicer than the cage. The only way I can think to do this is to offer gr different groups or systems of support. Why did the person end up in the cage in the first place? I'd posit they wanted help. They wanted their lives to be easier, to be safer, to be part of something bigger than themselves, safety in the group. If you're telling them they need the cage, what you are offering them to replace that which they've lost, pride and vaglory in the name of independence and cleverness. Okay, so that was actually a, a post for a show I did earlier where I talked about can you be an anarchist if you have a government job or work for the state in some way, especially if you've already had that job and then you transition to anarchy as a philosophy or even libertarianism, minarchism, should you then just quit your job? So that wasn't a direct response to yesterday's show, but it's very, very applicable. Let me read you what Insidious said in response to some of these people pushing back and saying it doesn't matter because the government already just wiped its butt with the Constitution anyway. And there's no reason to even talk about stuff like this because the two are so intrinsically linked. Here's what he says. The thing I find interesting about this discussion of government and law as if the, the thing I find interesting about this discussion of government and law is being discussed as if they're physical laws. The facts of the matter are X. In other words, you drop shit, it falls. I've said that before. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here for, for Insidious, but that's a physical law. The law of gravity is a law. The law that the government can or can't do something is not a law. It's an idea. It's a concept. So back to what Insidious said. No man-made system is un unalterable, inviolate, or permanent. What the founders intended, or what the Supreme Court has decided, are both equally immaterial to what we, the people, decide to do now. The level of passivity displayed, even among freedom-loving patriots, is frankly unbelievable. We've lost the fight for X, and now we will lose the fight for Y, so we need to focus on, question mark, oh, losing that fight too. Defeat is baked in. WTF. Are you free? Freedom is in your soul. You can have a chain around your neck and still be free. You can become a slave when you decide you are a slave, and when you accept your chains as inevitable and therefore as right. Seriously, WTF. Some of you know what WTF means. I guess there's a few people under a rock that don't know what the F, okay? All right, I agree, what the F. So this is my take on this, and this is what I was trying to explain. And most people that are pushing back, not with the, the logical... Does the Constitution really say argument? But with the, oh, it doesn't matter. They did it with guns. They did it with this. They did it with that. They do whatever they want. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're making my point in rebuttal to my point. You just don't get it. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. That is the problem. That we live in a nation where the people are so passive is to allow the government to wipe its ass with our Constitution. And not do anything about it. Not even say anything about it. Not even consider it anymore. It's not even that, you know, I'm not suggesting that when we, they do something we think is unconstitutional, we should go start pulling Congress clowns out of their chairs and burning them as effigies, even though they're not effigies in, in the streets of D.C. That's, that's not what I'm saying. That won't work. There's, there's no doubt about that. But this really does parallel the evolution of education in this nation. It was in the 1860s John Dewey was successful at implementing an educational paradigm that, as I said yesterday, had really started a hundred years before him as a goal for those that wanted to control the people of this country. 
a, a Prussian model of education that programs students rather than educates them. We took the trivium of grammar, rhetoric, uh, gra grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and we just kind of shit-canned it to the ass-can of history and said, we're going to do this. You're going to learn these things and parrot these things, and there's going to be a great system and blah, 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 blah. Then you graduate, and then maybe you can go to university or you can go work, and this is going to be the way you do it. You sit in your chair. It's in a straight line. You look at the teacher, a programming-based system. That is not an educational system. It is a programming system that provides an education. Now, this is the interesting thing. You have to take the whole stigma of slavery out of this for you for, to understand this. Because this was not about the North and the South. This was nationwide, in every state, and in every territory that was transforming into additional states within the Republic. People looked at discussions about government differently right up into the Civil War. It's not about the Civil War, though. you got to take that out. you got to understand, this is when the educational paradigm began to shift, and within one generation, the discussion changed. Okay, So try, if you can, I know it's difficult, slavery, the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, in a box, out of the way, and see that particular time about a shift in education for our people. And, and it took another 30 years until those children that were in that education system became the people that were in charge. That'll put us right up around 1890 to 1900. And, oh, lo and behold, the next thing you know, we have an income tax, a Federal Reserve, and we're off to World War I. Just, just that's how the timeline works out, and there might be a reason there. But up until that point, when the government was going to do something, And people would sit in a bar. I'm talking, you know, the blue collar of the day, the farmer, the rancher, the guy that fixed shoes, the blacksmith. We're drinking cider in a pub and talking to each other about this. The first discussion was not, I think this is a good idea or a bad idea. Because that discussion is immediately divisive. Because if you think it's a good idea and I think it's a bad idea or vice versa, we are immediately debating the issue. As, as, as this should be or should not be done. This, this assumes something that is disastrous in a republic that's supposed to be run by free-thinking citizens. An absolute disaster. Because the first discussion should be, does the government have the authority to do this in the first place? Because even if you think it's a good idea, and I think it's a bad idea, we can agree, if we're not misled, that that's an important question. Because then the question starts to become, yes, they, I, we think they, they, can, they can do this, or no, they can't. Well, if it's no, they can't, then even people that are for it should be against the government doing it. And, and you, you say that doesn't work today because of the way we're educated. Because of the way we're educated. We're educated in a true-false doctrine. That's why we have tests like that. It's not just to make them easier. It's part of the programming. Even multiple choice. How do they think about this? Any teacher who's honest with her students or his students that has to do, apply multiple choice testing with four questions or four answers to a question teaches them what? Two of these answers? You just look at them and know they're not it. Okay? Right? How, how many of you had teachers say, look, okay, it's a math problem, you do estimation, you know it's not these two, so that's only one of these two. Now you figure out if that answer works. Or it's a history question, 
You know, it's like, because it's, it's what it usually is, right? There's four answers. Two of them are, like, at least in the right realm of possibility, and two of them are just completely ridiculous. Why? It reprograms the brain to be, there's right and wrong, on and off, zero and one, A and B. That's divisive. That's divisive. If there's only two real options, then you're training the mind to think in that way. Because the discussion might go like this then. Well, the government wants to do this to help poor children. Well, that's a great idea. I, I'm all for it. But does the government have the authority to do this? Well, since the Constitution is a public document, let's take a look at it. Turns out, no, they, they, they really don't because they're proposing a tax that would be unapportioned to pay for this. Well, there's lots of unapportioned taxes. Yeah, but that, that doesn't mean it's okay to do another one. The, the Hitler killed a lot of Jews, but it wasn't like, oh, we can kill another one. It's okay because he killed a bunch already. You got it? And by the way, that was legal. This is illegal. So if we at least started to have these conversations again, and this is how conversations went about government up until the shift in education. And they continued to go this way until the children that were the product of that system replaced their parents. This is factual. You, you, you can change a lot of things, but you can't change facts. And you can ad, ad hominem attack that. You can say, but you can't put slavery away, Jack. That was a system that controlled slavery. It sure it did. It sure it did. My, my assertion isn't we should bring back slavery. It's that that discussion is still valid. You, you can't just say since, since there were flaws in the system, the system must be worse than what we have today. And it's the funny thing. We technically have the same system, but it sure doesn't look like it. The entire point is that we need to engage people to the point where they can begin to discuss these issues once again from a standpoint first of are they even allowed to? Because here's, here's your results with that. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And the, and it, it, it does not violate constitutionality. And it seems like a good idea. And if there's enough public backing, then maybe that'll get done. Okay? No, they're not. Now, now we have a choice. It's called the amendment process. If enough people really believe that they should be able to do that, then there's a movement toward enabling that. This is actually shaping, controlling the nation. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm saying if you want to say that you're a patriot, if you want to say that you're for the Constitution, this is how it's supposed to work. And nobody ever told you this in school before. I guarantee you. Now, what if the, 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 the results are this? We sit down, we're having a discussion, general population of the country, starts out with, can the government do this? Yeah, they can. Yeah, they can. They can do this. Okay. Do we think this is a good idea? And let's say the vast majority of people say, this is not a good idea. The government should not be doing this. I don't want the government doing this. Oh, what do we do about that? We vote in the right people. No. No, no, we don't vote in the right people because they still can do it. Then through the amendment process, if you want to run a republic by the people for the people, you propose an amendment that removes the capability of government to do that. That's hard to do. I know it is. I know it is. It, but even if it doesn't get done, what does it do? It ferments a resolve that thou shall not do these things. We, the people, are so pissed. We're not talking about voting you out. We're talking about taking over and making you restrict yourself. 
well, we won't do that. Well, I don't know if you will or you won't, but now we've changed the dynamic of the conversation. Now you can't have two ass clowns stand up in a political debate and talk about different ways they want to do something that the vast majority of people don't want done anyway. And then what you'll say is, but Jack, you say all the time people have chosen slavery. Yes, they have. But it's exactly what Insidious said, and it's why I read his, his post from the other episode. Why have they chosen slavery? Why have they chosen chains? Why have they to chosen a cage? Because they've been programmed to believe that. I can take my, my dog. When my dogs are pups, I crate train them. I crate train them because it works. It teaches them not to pee in the house. It's the number one way to have your dog not pee in the house. When the dog is left alone for any time after he's come in, he goes in the crate. When he comes out of the crate, he goes directly out the door. After he pees, he relieves himself outdoors. You bring him back inside. You observe him. You watch him. If he looks like he's going to pee, you pick him up and you put him outside. When you can't monitor 100%, you put him in the crate. If he pees or poos in the crate once, it'll happen once or twice. won't do it anymore. Dogs don't like to lay in their own pee. Okay? By doing this conditioning, not only does he not pee in the house, it gets to the point where you don't have to put the puppy in the crate. The puppy is a dog. A dog is a den creature. It likes to feel secure. You put the crate there, dog comes in, go in your box. Dog goes in the box, lays down, you shut the door. Now, how deep is this programming? My German Shepherd, Max, is like nine years old. I crate trained him when we got him. And he was like a year and a few months old pup. Right, So it was a little harder because he wasn't quite the same puppy, but I wanted that capability to crate train him. It lasted about a month. The crate went away. To this day, I can go outside. I can get a box. I can bring it in the house. I can set it down, and the dog walks around the box, doesn't care, doesn't pay attention to it, and I can say, Max, get in your box. After not doing it for years, the dog walks in the box, lays down, and waits for the door to be closed. He's trained to go to a cage. He's a 150-pound German Shepherd that doesn't get a lot of daily training, that this is not something that's reinforced every single day. It was done long ago. Go get in the box. Dog gets in the box. I had a Brittany Spaniel when I was a kid. He hated baths. I trained him to get in the tub when he was told to get in the tub to the point where I could be sitting in the, in the living room, decide I want to give the dog a bath. I'm eating a sandwich. Dog wants a piece of the sandwich. I don't want to give the dog. He's looking at the sandwich. Brit. Go get in the tub. Dog disappears. Finish the sandwich. Go in the kitchen. Rinse off the plate. Open up the, the, the drapes for the, the shower curtain. Dog sitting in the tub waiting for a bath. That's dogs. That's people. That's people. My, my son and daughter-in-law, I told you guys how much you're paying for insurance. They still have a huge deductible. They're expecting another child. They've had two sonograms. The doctor says, you have to have another one in X amount of weeks. And my wife says, why? And they said, well, they said we had to do it. Did you ask them why? Because I'll tell you why, so they can bill for it. They've looked, the development's normal. How many sonograms does a woman need? Oh, Jack, the AMA says, oh, by the way, John, John Pugliano kept mentioning the AMA yesterday, the American Medical Association. You know what that is? That's a union. Did you know that? Look it up. That's how we think today. If the government says something's okay, if they say they are allowed to do it, we believe them. We believe them. But then we'll pick issues 
like gay marriage, to get angry about and debate over, while they continue to, to sur surveil the American people without warrants, and you, you don't think you're being controlled and manipulated? What if all of that fervent and energy that went to fighting that battle just went to say, hey, you know what, guys? We, we've been talking about this, us, the gay people, the not gay people, the religious people, the atheists. And, and we're looking for here in this Constitution where it says that you, the state, have any authority to determine who is to be bound by either a, a secular or a religious ceremony into the contract of marriage. And, and we, we, we can't find that. So we're, we're thinking... Just saying. We're thinking that you guys don't need to be doing that. 30 years of bullshit from politicians would have never happened. 30 years of chasing a ghost that you're never going to extinguish. Where does this process start? It starts with education. So when you tell me, you people are telling me this, it doesn't matter because they've already. That is my point. That is my point. They've been allowed to do this for so long that it's become normalized in the brain of the average American, and you're not going to change it today. So one thing Insidious said in another comment was if you're in a fight for your life and you get punched in the mouth, and the guy's about to jump on you and finish the job, you don't lay there and wait for death. You do anything you can to stay in the fight and stay alive. And instead of going from fight to fight to fight, which is what we do, we fight this fight, and we either win or lose in our heads. We, we kept enough gun rights that we won. You know, Then we're going to go over here, and maybe it's the other side, and they're fighting for legalization of marijuana. They get it done in Colorado, and we won that. And then over here in this other state, it states, I don't want that, it's evil. They fight, and they keep it out, and they, they won as far as they're concerned. right? But the government doesn't give a shit, doesn't care. You're not fighting the real fight. The fight is for your heart and mind. Who do you believe should control your life? Who do you believe should control your life? That's the fight. That's the battle. That's the only battle. All of this other stuff is just minutia to distract you from the key fight. Who do you believe should control your life? And instead of having people say, I believe we need government to control our lives, and another group of people saying, I believe we need individuals to control our lives, You'd think that debate would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? If we just just took it down to just that one issue, which is the only real issue. Instead, we have the majority of people in this country saying, I believe this form of government should control our lives. And you have another group of people saying, I believe this form of government should control our lives. So both people are arguing for the same thing. I believe government should control our lives. I believe we need a smaller government represented by Republicans who will not tax us so onerously, and they will they will rape us a little bit less over here and a little bit more over here, but it'll be better for us because it's better to be raped this way than that way. And I do make metaphorical way. No, I believe we need a Democrat party that will come in and take care of the common man, the middle class, and, and tax the wealthy so that they pay their fair share. I believe government should control my life. That's what you're saying. That is the problem. And that is why a government can put a document together as a contract with its people and then literally wipe its ass with it for a hundred years and the people let it happen. 
So the only way to fix this isn't about getting people elected. It isn't about even starting you know, a convention of the states, an amendment process. It is to start with the actual fight. Who should control your life? And educating our children to ask this question. Because if we can do that for one generation, we win. The nation wins. The people win. And you do need to start influencing people in these government positions to just go, you know what, I like this. I like this. I think this is good. I don't want to be part of destroying this. But that's a different subject for a different day. Let's go into some other stuff. I mean, I just kind of like to end with, I think that's what we should be discussing is the constitutionality. I think that's a, a great place to start a discussion on an issue rather than whether it's good or bad because it benefits you or benefits somebody you think it benefits or harms somebody you think it benefits. We should be starting out with, should they even be allowed to do this? Because it leads to the right solutions rather than the distractions. And I really needed to go somewhere like way to the opposite field with this to, to get into a new groove for the rest of the show. So I have a question today on guns, um, specifically cast lead bullets. Um, question is from, huh, no name, so we'll just call him Bcret because that's the name on the email, Bcret. Uh, what is the most effective and fast, fastest method to remove heavy lead or copper fouling from a barrel? Specifically, I purchased a used 41 Magnum Marlin 1895 and took it to the range after a quick boar snake cleaning. Note the 41 mag is around that is out of favor and only man one manufacturer sells copper bullets. Most people cast their own bullets. The thing was spraying all over the place. I took it home, started cleaning it with CLP, and took it back to the range. No, it's be better, but still far from good. I took it home and took a bronze brush and wrapped it with a chore boy copper uh, strands and started passing it through the barrel uh, using uh, Otis pull-through system. Uh, literally, chunks of lead started following out, uh, falling out of the barrel. I spent two and a half hours passing copper wrap brush through the barrel, at least 100 passes and still have fouling and lead flecks coming out of the barrel. Any suggestions to better and faster cleaning and prevent such fouling would be appreciated. As far as cleaning it, you're, you're going to have to clean it at this point. Um, you could consider a process called bullet lapping, which is a way that some people treat barrels as initial break-in. I don't know how well that would work for this, but it might, and that would use you know standard uh, copper-jacketed bullets to do that, I think. I'm not real familiar with that process, but I mean just to fix what you've got. But otherwise, you just have to really keep doing what you're doing and, and clean it out um, and, and use you know proper cleaning solvents to do that. This is not actually going to fix your problem, though. I wanted to talk about this because there's a lot of people that are in the you know the realm of let's let's just develop skill sets and, and casting lead bullets is a great one, and it can often lead to this, especially in higher pressure rounds. The 41 Magnum is a is a pretty substantial round and capable of of some pretty impressive ballistics, especially when we put it through. It's either with an 1895, it's probably a 22 inch barrel, right, or an 18 inch barrel. It's one or the other, but that's that's a significantly long barrel. And it results in a pretty significant velocity gain for even you know somewhat moderate 41 Magnum loads. And what happens is we take a lead bullet, it's pretty soft, and we, we put it into a 41 Mag case, and we put a pretty good hot powder behind it, and we shoot it. And the base of the lead begins to melt from the heat and the pressure, and some of the gases actually bypass 
the slug on the way out of the barrel and strip lead off and leave it behind in the lands and grooves of the barrel. And just like when you go for a walk and it's muddy out and you first step in the mud, a little bit of mud accumulates to your boots, and then the next time you step in the mud a little bit more and a little bit more, and a little, and be, next thing you know, you've got to take your boots off and beat them out because they weigh four pounds a piece because the, the mud accumulates to mud better than it does rubber. As you get lead on the barrel, the new lead that's having the same problem happening sticks to the old lead even better, and you get more barrel residue. And you're actually heating that lead up so it's in a, a semi, semi-melted state while even hotter lead is grabbing it and sticking to it, kind of vulcanizing. Yeah? So how do we stop this? Well, first of all, the number one way to stop this, if we just want to be casting our own bullets, is to cast harder bullets and make sure we're loading appropriate to the hardness of the lead bullet with the pressure of the load. This is, I cannot explain this online, on the air. This is a whole show if I did, and it would bore 50% of the audience or more to tears. But I can tell you how to learn how to do this. There's a book called Modern Reloading by Richard Lee. It goes over all this, including how to test the hardness of your lead very simply and very accurately, and then adjusting your loads accordingly for the hardness of your lead. The other thing I can tell you is if you go get wheel weights, okay, that's a very hard lead uh, alloy, and even using 20% wheel weight uh, lead with any other lead, you're going to have a very, very hard alloy, and you're going to mitigate this to a great deal just right there. You know, if you want at least some, or, or other another way to harden lead is with tin, at least 1% tin will harden it, but wheel weights, uh, I think it's antimony is what's in them, will harden it even more, and that, that helps a lot. The next is you want to make sure that you're using a good bullet lube on all cast lead bullets. That's That's next. The number one way to kind of put a cap on this, to put a cap on the back of the bullet, um, we call that cap a gas check. And there's natural gas checks. People use waddings and things like that. But Hornady makes um, these copper gas checks. They're available from places like Midway USA and what have you. And it's a little cup of copper. And it just goes on the back of the bullet. And it crimps there, and then you load as normal, and then you have a base of copper that that hot gas is expanding against, and you're going to have a lot less blow-by and a lot less accumulation. This is important right now. If you're going to pursue this, if you've had this problem, if you're going to buy the book, Modern Reloading, by Richard Lee, there's two versions. I have both of them. The first one is the old school one, the first edition. It's got a red cover. It does not have the expanded information in it about testing lead hardness and adjusting your bullet, uh, your loads according to your bullet hardness. It doesn't have it. It has one little paragraph in the end of the chapter on casting bullets on, 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 on gas checks. That's it. The second edition, I guess it is, has more of like a greenish-blue I'm looking for it here. I'm going to go right now and grab it off the shelf. It's a it's the, the Modern Reloading 2nd Edition by Richard Lee. I'm not sure if there's a 3rd or 4th yet. I got this 10 years ago, I guess. Dog-eared and yellow already. Um, but it's the 2nd Edition. It's kind of like a greenish color and brown. And it's got a picture of a reloading die uh, with a cartridge on it. I will put a link in the show notes. The main reason I tell you this is 
This is a book that's probably available used on eBay and used bookstores like Half Price Books all over the place. So if you're buying a used copy, that's fine, but you need to make sure you're at least at the second edition if that's your motivation for buying it. I would also tell you this. If you are a person that likes to play with reloading, that likes to do really light loads, uh, that likes to load um, like my 44 Magnum quiet load with uh, H414 powder, if you can find a copy of the old school one and you just want some really cool reloading data, There are loads in the red book that are not in the green and brown book. And just because those loads are no longer published does not mean that they're no longer valid. And there are specifically loads in there for things like 44 Magnum and 44 Special and stuff like that, 38 Special, for heavy for caliber bullets going to the light end of loading. These are not squib loads, which are, we won't get into that, but you know they're not loads that are going to end up with the bullet jam. These were published data loads that just because they were unpopular and powder manufacturers want to sell more rather than less powder, they stopped publishing. Because unlike all the other reloading books from Spear and Hornady and stuff like that, the reason I like the modern reloading book from Richard Lee is that they basically take everybody's data and consolidate it. So it's all the different powder manufacturers, et cetera, load data uh, incorporated into a single reference book. It's also very affordable. If you're looking to get into reloading, I recommend Lee reloading equipment for everything except powder measures. Now, the progressive presses and all, they're okay, and the, the powder measurement that works with that, that's fine. But if you're going to be reloading uh, handgun, rifle cartridges, and things like that, Uh, I would recommend if you're going to be doing small quantities and you want precision, uh, Lyman makes a, a powder measure that has a dispenser and a digital scale. And you set the exact grains of powder you want, you push a button, it distributes, and it, they, they talk to each other. And the scale says, I'm, I'm done now. Or I'm almost done, and then the, the powder just trickles out a grain at a time. Not a grain of weight, like actually a grain of powder. Okay, there it is. You get a perfect load. That's expensive. That's like, I think they're like 250 bucks or 300 bucks, something like that. Um, but if you don't buy really expensive presses and dyes and you buy affordable stuff from Lee, you can get one of those badass powder measures, uh, and dyes for four or five different cartridges and all the presses and everything else you need and still, still be out the same if you went to Horton and you did it. And frankly, it's just as good. So there's my little reloading PSA of the day. Uh, but again, if you want the enhanced data for, uh, for the cast bullet stuff, With the modern reloading, you need the second edition or later. One other thing you'll learn about in, in those books, though, um, Lee Reloading has a shotgun slug um, mold, for those of you who like to cast your own stuff. They cast, I think it's a one-ounce slug, and they call it a keyhole slug or a key drive slug or something like that. And it's it's like the only way I know of that you can you know really reload shotgun slugs with a standard shot shell reloader, and it actually sits in the wad and you crimp the shell just like normal. They're awesome. They're awesome. Um, I don't reload shotguns right now. I've thought about getting a Lee load all for the shotgun just to start casting those slugs. And if you have a rifled slug barrel, what happens is the wadding actually, you know, if you have a shotgun with a rifled slug barrel, the wadding actually just acts like a Sabo. And uh, that might be something some of you guys want to check out just for fun. Let's stick with another gun uh, question for the moment. Um, this one's like, What do I get? I'm thinking about all these things here. Listen, this is from Ben from PA, about to turn 18. What would you recommend for a tactical shotgun or rifle for a first tactical gun? 
I'm turning 18 in a few weeks and plan on getting a tactical long gun of some sort. I have a 22 rifle, a 306 bolt action, and a Mossberg 500. I'm assuming that Mossberg 500 is like a a hunter's Mossberg 500, standard pump, you know, sporting shotgun, because he says, as well as access to the rest of my family's firearms, which unfortunately does not include any semi-autos or tactical guns of any type. I was looking at getting a KSG with a red dot and a decent amount of ammo. But was also thinking about getting an AK and build my, building my own AR or get a VZ-58. I have a $1,000 ceiling, and I don't know which one I should get as a nice beginner tactical long gun. I w- would also probably get an AR lower or two in addition to whatever else I get, both as investment as a potential project. One last thing, I'm also a lefty. This would be better aimed at one of your experts. Feel free to send it to the right one. Sorry for any inconvenience that might cost you. Okay, there's no inconvenience here, but here's what I want to kind of start out with. So I think when you say, I want to get my first tactical gun, a long gun, and I need to know what to get, I think the first question is, to what end do you want this gun? And I, I don't mean that in some kind of back-slapping way, like, do you really need a tactical gun? No, I'm just saying, like, to what end? Because you want a gun that's tactical for home defense? Like That, that would be a reason. Because you just want one, because they're cool. That's also a... T- if you have the money, and you're not going to the poorhouse or going in debt, that is a totally valid reason to want anything, including a gun. Because you see yourself eventually shooting in competitions that you want to be able to shoot in like a three-gun competition or something like that, okay? Because you want to take training and you feel that it would be good to take said training with your own weapon. These are all potential reasons that you would want a tactical rifle or a tactical shotgun. So, here's my view. Of everything you mentioned, the most flexible with the most options to do different things within the future is in no doubt an AR-15. They cost more than some of the other things you mentioned, but they are the bomb. The KSG is a really cool-looking tactical shotgun made by Keltec. It has two separate magazines and a selector switch to go from one to the other. It's kind of heavy, but it's like a bullpup design. It's short. It's awesome. Can I admit this? I want one, but I haven't spent the money on it. Again, I'm going to say this. I want one, but I haven't spent the money on it. I would also say that, in my opinion, the KSG is not a beginner's tactical gun. It is, at best, an intermediate skilled level tactical gun. There's been, because of the bullpup design, what we've done with the Caltech is we've met the overall length. Uh, long enough so that the, the gun is not needing a, a special stamp, but we've modified the way that the gun's designed so that it, it, it handles like a much shorter barreled weapon, and the hands are much coarse, closer to the barrel, uh, or not the barrel, but the muzzle, than normally would be the case. And several people have blown off their hands with a KSG. I'm not saying it's going to happen to you. I'm not saying anybody should not own a KSG just because of that. I'm saying that it can happen, and if you've not done tactical training before, and it's your intent to do tactical training, that we train to get better, or we wouldn't do it at all, okay? And that since we're going to get better, we have to admit that there's a, a beginning point, and at that beginning point, we have a greater propensity to make mistakes, and in this case, the, the mistake may blow a finger or more off your hand. 
and it has happened, and there's been forward grips break off, and it's not a lot, but it's happened. And overall, I just don't see this as being anything other than something that's really cool, and I really like the idea of, but it is not the most practical thing, especially for someone getting started. Contrast this with, now, so an AK, reliable, cheap ammo, sort of still, um, but it is what it is, and it's, it, it's all that it's going to be. And it's, it, it's limited in that. It's not as accurate as an AR. It doesn't have the flexibility of an AR. It, it really doesn't. For all the AK fans out there, I'm sorry. It, it doesn't. So let's take, before I go to the VZ-58, and let's talk about the differences for you, anyway, between the AR-15 and the AK-47. So the AK is what it is. And it's really optimized for a right-hand shooter and um, but it, it's actually designed to be very friendly to either hand so you wouldn't have to do really anything to, to run your AK but that said the VZ-58 is actually kind of a, a weapon that was out of touch with reality when it was made the way the VZ-58 even happens Czechoslovakian And behind the Iron Curtain, everybody just kind of fell in line and went with the AK. The Czechs said, we're not doing that. So the, the VZ-58 is actually developed by the Czech government. It's, it's very similar in a lot of ways to the AK. There's some differences with uh, the, the bolt uh, and, and the, the piston system and the, the, the firing pin, the striker, uh, what have you. But in a lot of ways, it's a lot like somebody made a different AK. But because we had a lot of soldiers that had come up, especially in, in you know Eastern Europe, with both guns, even through World War II, you know when we when we were running around with our Garands and the, the Soviets had had you know their first uh, semi-autos and, and machine guns and stuff like that going down to the average soldier. A lot of these guys from these Eastern Bloc nations were still running around with rifles that were 30 years old. So they were used to doing things with their right hand. And the charging handle of the uh, VZ-58 is set up like it would be for a right-handed bolt gun user. And that means that a right-hand shooter ends up basically, when they need to work the action, holding the pistol grip and reaching across the top and tilting the weapon To, to work the charging handle, where the left-hand shooter has the pistol grip in their left hand, and it's right there on the right side. So it actually just is a left-handed rifle in many ways. So if you were going to say, I'm going to go with you know, a, a 762 by 39 semi-auto military surplus, and I'm going to go between the VZ and the... Uh, AK, uh, I would say then just go with the VZ because it's already set up for you. And there's a lot you can do with it with accessories and modifications if you want to. I still want to steer you back to the AR-15 because there's, there's, there's a couple things I want to steer you toward here. One, you're going to build it yourself. Great. That's going to help you with the cost differential. Okay? So once you've built it, it's, it's done. It's a done deal. And now, 
If you want to put different uppers on it, you can. Number two, you told me you're probably going to get some AR lowers anyway. Okay, well then, if you're going to do that, you might as well just start there. Number three, there is there's there's no weapon in this world, this tactical long gun world, that has as much available for it, as much accessories, as much options as the AR. It's very flexible. You don't have to just shoot two two threes out of it. And uh, my, my good buddy Nathan Love would be the guy to talk to about this. I'm sure he'd like this as a case study story. So. One of the additional, there's some additional costs. You, you you can get an AR lower that's ambidextrous, basically. So it's got the magazine release on both sides, safety on both sides. And that's probably the best way to go. That way you have a lower, if you ever want to sell it, works for right-handers. Because if you have, I don't even know if they make them. But if they did, you're kind of locked into just the southpaw market. I've never actually seen a truly left-handed AR. What I've actually seen, and I'm talking about the lower, not the upper with the ejection issue. What I've seen is the lowers be ambidextrous and then have a, a you know left-handy side ejection so you don't get hit in the face. Okay, so you get your ambidextrous lower and then build an upper on the Warlock system since you're going to pay more for a left-handed upper. Okay? And then you have your 223 barrel with that for and it's just it's just an AR. It's just an AR. But when you want to put a different caliber through it, there's this whole list of calibers. And you turn a nut, you pull a barrel off, you pop another barrel on, boom, you don't need another background check, you're good to go. So I'll put a link to Frontier Tactical and, and their Warlock product today. Uh, I have I have a set here that I really need to uh, to get out and shoot. I'm, I'm kind of blown away with it. He sent me... Um, a 17, a, a standard 223, and a 300 blackout. And so your AK, your uh, VC will never be able to, to, to partake. So I'm not even saying you should build this with a Warlock from the beginning because once you have your lower built, you, you can get an upper and put it on there with a Warlock system on any time. You can just build a standard left-handed AR for now, and you have that option later. What else will be available for the AR platform 10 years from now. I don't know. I don't know. But it might be even cooler. I don't think you're going to have a lot of really innovative things built for the VZ or the AK platform. They'll just have more and more ways to attach stuff with Pictimi rails and stuff like that. So that's what I would do if I were you. I'm not saying you're wrong to do... Because you can make a real case for the VZ is pretty affordable... You can go out and get one. You don't have to do anything to it, and you're you're in the game. But if you're telling me you're going to buy lowers anyway, I, I would I would look to do something with with an AR platform. Because here's another thing: I don't know anybody that ever bought an AR-15 that says I should have bought something different, unless it was like their fifth one or something, right? But I do know people that you know they put their money into an AK. They kept adding money into their AK to get it to where they want it. They finally get it all kitted up. They've got a lot of money in this gun now. More than if they would have just bought a really great off-the-shelf, like a Smith & Wesson M&P, you know, for 1100 bucks. Really nice AR platform. And, and don't need to do much to it. And they've got all this money in this AK, and then they say, you know what, I, I would rather have an AR. And they go to sell it, and they can't get anywhere near what they have into it, out of it. They really can't. You know, they, they, they can't get much more than they paid for the base gun, in many instances. So, 
that's that's why I do that. And I just think the AR is more flexible in in every way, shape, and form. And I I really believe this, despite this whole debate. If the AK-47 was really a better gun than the AR-15, the United States soldiers would have them. Yeah, I know it runs with mud in it, but that doesn't really apply to you, so don't worry about that. Well, let's take another one. How about some more follow-up on yesterday's show, but not the uh, constitutional talk, the uh, talk by John Pugliano and I about automation. And I think we actually said that robots would be picking lettuce soon. I, I think we said that that even those types of jobs were at risk. Well, uh, somebody who heard that immediately sent this article to my attention from drudgetoday.com. The world's first robot-run farm will harvest 30,000 heads of lettuce daily. Let me read the article to you. Spread, the Japanese lettuce production company believes the farmers of the future will be robots, so much so that Spread is creating the world's first farm managed entirely by robots instead of relying on human farmers. The indoor vegetable factory will employ robots that can harvest 30,000 heads of lettuce every day. Don't expect a bunch of humanoid robots to roam the halls, however. The robots look more like conveyor belts with arms. They'll plant seeds, water plants, trim lettuce heads after harvest in the Kyoto Japanese farm. The use of machines and technology has been improving agriculture in this way throughout human history. J.J. Price, a spokeswoman uh, at Spread, tells Insider Tech, with the introduction of plant factories and their controlled environment, we are now able to provide ideal environment for the crops. Spread, uh, sorry, uh, the vegetable factory follows uh, the growing agricultural trend of vertical farming where farmers grow crops indoors without natural sunlight, so they rely on LED light to grow crops on racks that stack on top of each other. In addition to increasing production and reducing waste, indoor vertical farming also eliminates runoff from pesticides and herbicides, chemical use in traditional outdoor farming that can be harmful to the environment. The new farm set to open in 2017 will upgrade to spread its existing indoor farm. The Kamoka plant of the farm currently produces about 21,000 heads of lettuce per day. With help from a small staff of humans, Spread's new automation technology will not only produce more lettuce, it will reduce labor costs by 50%, cut energy use by 30%, and recycle 98% of the water needed to grow the crops. The resulting increase in revenue and resources could cut costs for consumers, Price says. Quote, our mission is to help create sustainable society where the future generations will not have to worry about food security and food safety, end quote. Price says, quote, this means they will have to make it affordable for everyone to begin to grow staple crops and plant protein to make a real difference, end quote. Um, this is pretty cool. I know there's people out there who say, Jack, you're the permaculture guy. We shouldn't be growing lettuce in a building like this with these synthetic chemicals and all. Well, let's look at this environmentally just for a second instead of just going on the automation here. The... The, the fertilizers that are being used to grow this type of a product, which is pr primarily a hydroponic design system, uh, are relatively non-harmful to people. I think the biggest thing that you would say that this type of vegetable lacks is it's not as nutrient-dense as something grown in good soil. So let's compare it to what it's replacing. We're talking about plants that are replacing plants currently being grown in extremely depleted and over-fertilized uh, and over-irrigated soil. So I'd say there are probably actually better nutritionally and chemically for people to eat than mainstream, non-nutrient-dense produced local vegetables. And I would say that almost is the same for organic lettuces and things like that. In fact, this, you could actually create an organic lettuce very, very easily just by choosing which inputs to use for fertilizer. 
And this is no evaporation. There's no need for pesticides because we have a controlled environment. We're not going to have infestations. And if we do, we can eradicate them much easier with a much, much less chemical. So, and if we want to keep it organic, that right there says a lot. I mean, a, a few, um, what's the, the uh, lemongrass oil misters in this place and any kind of flying insects toast. And all you get is a little bit of lemon flavor to your lettuce. So this is... This is more environmentally friendly than what we're doing now. It doesn't compare to true nutrient-dense farming that restores our soils and puts carbon in our soils. It doesn't. It just doesn't. But it's better than what we have. So it also doesn't matter. If I can produce 30,000 heads of lettuce like this a day, how many fields can I stop dumping crap on and how many people can I stop paying so this company is going to reduce their labor cost by 50% but what do you think the labor reduction is over conventional farming of lettuce in the dirt see they're only reducing it by 50% because they're already basically doing this with people and they're just replacing a lot of the people with robots but here's the bigger lesson we told you this is coming and the minute we say it here it is it's already here I didn't know this, this, this particular plan existed. And I'm, I'm actually in many ways excited about what can be done with certain crops like this in these environments for two totally different reasons. One, the average person that's for sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, not everybody, because I'm one of them, and I'm not one of these people, but the permaculturists, especially the young people that are kind of starry-eyed about it and all, do not in the least bit way comprehend the amount of food that has to be produced just to feed one major city in this country you need agriculture on this kind of scale to feed society today with the population we have you're not going to do it all with backyard gardens you're just not now maybe as we migrate toward a society where people do have more free time if we can get through this nightmare or golden age depending on how it turns out to be to where we have it actually fulfilling lives, maybe there could be a lot more local production because people might have the time to do it, the desire to do it, etc. Okay? Now, the other thing that I think this is actually a boom for regenerative type agriculture is it will create demand for people that want more nutrient-dense food. It will. It will people like, this is hydroponically, I want something grown in the dirt. Great, the guy down the road that sells at the farmer's market does that. And he's going to be growing in a way that takes care of the soil. It also might start taking some of these farms that are using broad acres to grow carrots and lettuce and things like that and allow them to then focus on growing perennial crops like trees and berries. And then we actually can start restoring soil. And then we can start growing grass in between them. We can start grazing animals. And we can actually start holistically managing. See, I actually think that this is a way forward to being able to take a lot of land that's being used poorly today and move toward more holistic management practices. If we can start replacing some of our grain crops with things like chestnuts and hazelnuts and doing that in a civil pasture model and start turning cornfields into high, the highest quality pasture And you know what? We have hundreds of years before we get that done. But this actually can accelerate it, in my view. But it also is going to put a lot of low-level labor out of work. There's actually a picture of a lady 
with a you know a, a, like a sneeze mask on, you know, and a hairnet and a white suit, uh, picking lettuce and, and packaging lettuce in this plant. And the caption says, "Spread a worker, spread a a worker at the Kamoka plant, not a robot." But I wonder if right now she understands that robots are going to replace her job if, she, if she's not one of the you know one out of two that are going to lose their job. I mean, everybody thinks they're the one that's going to stay. Well, probably a lot of these people, it's, it's not even one out of two. Like, your whole department is gone, right? And then, you know, we need less payroll people, but there's probably still some logistics that still need to be taken care of, you know? And that, that's the people that will stick around. To down to a skeleton crew, a plant that runs itself. Plant that runs itself, and almost every job in that plant could eventually go to automation. Almost every job, and so I, I do think it's like, I don't think it's completely Pollyanna to start asking ourselves if technology can begin to free us to where the actual amount of work that needs to be done could be done in a twenty-hour work week. How we could actually start to think about a society that would use the time that people would have to try to build stronger communities and build more build more local food and, and do all of the things that human beings would do if they weren't encumbered by a need to have, you know, because most people that say they have a 40-hour-a-week job, that's their minimum. They work 60. I know that when I had a, a conventional job that I put in, on average, 70 hours a week. 70 hours a week, and I probably backed it down to about 60 when I started doing this show part-time, and I was probably putting in 25 a week to do this show so I could transition out of that world. So at that point, even though I kind of backed off some things with my you know, professional responsibilities, I was putting in more hours. I was, I was running 85-hour weeks so that I could get out to this. I don't think everybody has to go through that. I think that we can do more with less. I think automation can be good, but I also think we have a lot of problems in this world, and we need to also be figuring out how to solve them. And I think a lot of you guys are environmentally concerned. Some of you take real issue because I don't believe in the complete problem of global warming. Some of you like that I don't, and I think some of you that like that I don't believe in it don't know how much I do believe in environmental degradation and damage. And, 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 I, and I do you know, believe that we're making mistakes with how we're using fossil fuels and all. Not because CO2 is warming the planet to you know, cataclysmic ends and every doomsday prediction that was uh, a year away came and went and didn't happen. Not because of that. Because you just look at the damage being done. Well, one of the biggest sources of that damage is agriculture. Agriculture burns massive amounts of, of fossil fuels. Massive amounts. It dumps massive amounts of chemicals on the ground. It uses massive amounts of water. And if we can take systems that recycle 98% of their water and eliminate jobs that people really don't want, should we? I kind of feel like we should, but I also am aware of what that means. That means a lot of people without jobs. But this has always been resisted. Do you know that in the 1600s, they had enough technology to start building proper sawmills, and they didn't initially? Here's why. They had these pits, and two guys would take like a two-man saw, like you see in the old school, you know, two, one guy and another, a, a rip saw for cutting long ways. And the one guy would go down in a pit, and the other guy would stand up on top of the log, and they would saw board lumber. And you took turns. You were up on top one cut, and then you flipped with your buddy, 
and you were down in the bottom for the next go-through, because the guy on the bottom had all the sawdust and crap falling on him, so it sucked. So you took turns and rotated. Terrible job. Everybody that did it hated it. But, you know, it caused strikes when they started talking about going to sawmills because you're taking my job away. But how much better off are we to the fact that we can actually cut board lumber much quicker now as a society? So we, we, we really have to examine these technologies and understand the swords cut both ways but not be afraid of them just because they're new and different. Um, kind of, I think this is a good next article, or not article, next piece of feedback to read for you, because when I talk about what the future could be a lot of times, I think that people have a tendency to say, well, then since it'll get better, we should just wait for it to get better, or the solutions outside of ourselves, and it's not. It's still important that we're building our own freedom right here at home. So this comes from, I think, the guy's name, Matt in Ohio. And Matt says, hey, Jack, you asked for feedback on how the survival podcast has impacted lives. The easier question to answer is, how hasn't the survival podcast impacted my life? Anyway, here's a quick rundown. I started listening to you in December of 2014, a registered Republican, 43 years old, and began with episode 1468, The World Won't End But Yours Could. I had come to the Survival Podcast with entirely different expectations and philosophies. I thought I was looking for end-of-the-world information and instead came away with advice and practical content that allowed me to prepare for life instead. Through you, I was introduced via podcasting to John Pugliano at Wealthsteading.com. Between the two of you, I learned the skills to allow me to completely transform my life by association and my family's lives. Changes. In 2014, we had a mortgage on a 57-acre property in Northeast Ohio. Our total debt at the time was $300,000 with monthly expenses that essentially had us living paycheck to paycheck despite two very good careers. You and John beat it into my head that we were on the fast track for eventual failure. We focused on selling the larger property and using the equity we had built up in the home to build a smaller, more financially stable footprint going forward. We succeeded in doing that a mere 10 months after the first listening to you and John's advice. We now have a zero credit card, HELOC, and any other debt secondary to our much smaller mortgage. I estimate we are now able to reduce our, we were able to reduce our overall debt by $200,000. On a monthly basis, we are now spending 60% less to live and didn't sacrifice our basic day-to-day comfort in order to do so. What we are doing with the 60% savings? Uh, we were able to purchase in cash a 4.5-acre parcel in central Florida that we will someday put a small dwelling on to serve as a secondary location in the event of circumstances forces to hit the road. This was all done out of pocket. We are much closer to being able to qualify for future investing clients of John Pugliano, who, by the way, is a real treasure for the expert council. I've purchased Stephen Harris Battery Bank videos and will incorporate that into future mobile bank uh, battery bank for my 96 uh, Suburban 6.5-liter diesel. Oh, by the way, those old diesels, never sell those guys. Never give them up. And if you find a good opportunity on the diesel that's 2005 or earlier, buy it. Just saying. Um, next, number four, we are well on the way to having uh, good food, water, shelter, and financial preps in place. Uh, five, Erica Strauss' new book, The Hands-On Home, has been a great addition to our library. I've been in, I've been, I have enough diesel on hand, thanks to currently low-priced fuels, and shopper reward points at 145 a gallon, I was able to buy, stabilize, and store enough fuel to make the drive to Florida in the event that a disaster pushes me out of my current home. 
Lastly, I unplug from the Matrix and no longer argue with friends and acquaintances about politics. You're right. The ass clowns are best, ser are, are best served by dividing us. I choose to no longer participate. Saying thanks seems inadequate, but it's the best I can do. So here it is. Thank you for providing the information necessary for me to open my eyes and change not only my life, but all the lives I touch on a daily basis. P.S. I was a police officer. And you're right when you tell your listeners that having Leos in the audience and influencing them Influencing them through the thought process on liberty and freedom is very beneficial to everyone they may come into contact with. Best regards, Matt in Ohio. See? See? Those of you that say, you're an anarchist, why do you talk nice to cops? There you go. That's why. That's why right there. Would you have preferred that that all didn't happen? You Would, would you prefer... That, that a, an officer of the law remain a staunch GOP conservative Republican instead of having their eyes open to liberty and freedom? I mean, would you prefer that they stay stressed out and on the road to financial oblivion so that they're stressed the hell out when they're dealing with some ass clown that really doesn't need a beating, but he could probably get away with giving them a beating? You think a person that's all stressed out about life is a little bit more likely to succumb to those temptations? Huh? You think somebody that thinks, oh, he's just a prick anyway? Is more, I mean, come on. Not to mention all these other great things. This is proactivity. And you know what this is? This is a misunderstanding of the word apathy. This man is apathetic toward the systems. This man is not apathetic toward life. This is proactive apathy at its finest. This is, I'm tired of letting the system steer my course. I am going to steer it for myself. I'll make some decisions, some easy, some hard, but in the end, I know where I'm going. I want you to think about this. Every day, all over the world, ships leave ports. Did Jack just go to ships? Hold on and listen. Trust me. Always trust me, guys. I always bring it back, right? So every day, all over the planet, ships leave their ports. And in spite of what you've been told, there are ships in the Atlantic right now. They leave ports and they travel thousands of miles across currents and winds and storms. And 99.9% of the time, they get to another port that was exactly where they were going in the first place. Not only do they get there, they get there in a very small block of time that was planned for them to get there. Why? Well, because they're going there. That's the answer. That's the answer. And a captain laid out a course plotted a course and accounted for the variables that were going on and determined that this is what needs to happen to get the ship from, let's say, Japan, Tokyo, Japan, to Los Angeles, California. Pretty you know, straight, easy thing to do. But there's all kinds of complex courses that ships take. But they get there because the captain determines the rate of travel, the speed of travel, the hazards along the way, how much fuel to take on, how much cargo. They answer all these questions, because if you don't, you're literally sunk. Don't you think your life is just as important as a cargo ship from China or Japan or London or Africa? Then you have to be the captain of the ship that is your life. And then there's a 99.9% .9 chance that, assuming you don't get hit by a gravel truck or somebody drops an airplane on you or something like that, that you'll kind of get where you were going. Okay, conversely, what are the odds that if we take some moron, don't even know how a ship works, we say, hey, see this? This makes it go forward and backward, 
And this is where the engine's going, and they're like, okay, they have enough understanding to at least get it out of the harbor and start heading somewhere. With no course laid in and no plan, and that ship is supposed to be in Los Angeles three weeks from now on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock talking to the harbor master. What is the odds that that ship's going to get there? A hundred gazillion to one, you're more likely to win the Powerball. Okay, now hold on, let's make this more interesting. If the guy running the ship is capable but not paying attention because somebody else is controlling the ship by remote control and their goal is not for the ship to get to Los Angeles but his his expectation is that the ship will get to Los Angeles and he lets the other person control the ship who doesn't want it to get there, what are the odds that it will get to Los Angeles? Infinitesimally, it won't because... The other person's agenda is counter to the guy that's on the ship that thinks he's in control's agenda. Welcome to your life. If you don't take charge of the SSSU, that is your life. The system is not designed to get you where you want to be. It's designed to control you so you stay where society as a whole wants you to be, which is you do what you're told, you shut your mouth, and you just get by, and you please die on time so you're not in our way. Don't make any waves, don't cause any problems, fit into your social class, and shut up. That's what the system wants from you. So if you don't want that, you got to go find the box. This is metaphorical, okay? The box that's attached to your ship that's controlling it. And you might not want to take a hammer to it just yet. Like quit your job with no plan. You, first you're going to kind of go around the ship and figure out how the ship works. You're going to figure out where you actually are going and where you've been. You can contrangulate those positions with where you want to go and determine where you are. Okay, you understand how that works? Just like map navigation. So... I don't really, because most of you don't know, that, that, that haven't already done this, you haven't taken charge, you don't know where you are yet. You don't, you can't change course because you don't even know where you are. So let's start out with, let's map out our life. How did I get here? Where do I want to go? Where am I headed? Be honest about where you're headed because you probably don't want to be because it's not good. How much debt am I in? How long will it take to pay off at the current rate? How much bigger will it get if I keep doing what I'm doing? Do I love my job? Do I love my career? Is this what I want to do? Is my wife happy or are my kids happy? What is their trajectory? You can't control everybody. You can control yourself. And then you say, okay, I know where I'm headed. I know where I've been. I know how I got here. Now to find where I want to go. Now I got a bearing. Now you take a big freaking sledgehammer. You'll find the box. Boop, boop. Smash the shit out of the box. Throw it overboard and take control of the ship. Now, you can't take a freight liner, right, that's steaming as fast as it can in one direction and just flip it 180 degrees without changing velocity, course, adjusting for conditions, etc. You can't just immediately turn course to exactly where you want to go and start hauling ass there. There's a transitional period where you slow the ship down, take your new bearing, turn it around and adjust. And all of a sudden, since you've never driven a ship before, there's this cross current, and you think you're pointed the right direction. And all of a sudden, you look at the compass bearing, and I'm drifting off course. Fine. At least I know that. Then I'm going to readjust. There's a storm ahead. Let's slow the ship down. Let's get bearing on the storm. Okay, I have to divert. Right? This is what captains do. This is what you do with your life. This man's doing that with his life. 
And you think it takes a long time? 2014? It's 2016. Two years. Two years. Makes me feel I'm not doing enough, honestly. Let's take another one. Let's kind of end with a, uh, a fun one, so to speak, right? So I'll, I'll have to do a little education for those that maybe don't know what Applejack is here. But uh, the question is pretty simple. One says, Jack, obviously this is for educational purposes only. But could Applejack be made in a modern freezer as opposed to sitting in a frozen barn all winter? Thanks, Matthew. Uh, the answer is yes. So let's start out, well, what is Applejack if we're going to talk about making it, and why are we saying for educational purposes only? Um, Applejack is basically like an apple brandy, except that we don't distill it like we would do a brandy. So if we were going to make a conventional apple brandy, we take a whole bunch of apple juice and we ferment it. And then we take that fermented apple juice and we put it into something like a pot still. And, and if we want to make a brandy, not like a, a moonshine, it's 130, 140 you know, uh, proof, something like that. We want like a, a good brandy, like a somewhere in the neighborhood of like 80-ish proof, like 40% alcohol. Well, we, we run it through that still and we end up with a lot of the apple flavors and characteristics still remaining there. And we get rid of a lot of the water, and we end up with uh, some of the water, lots of the alcohol, and lots of the, the apple flavoring. But we're going to end up discarding a lot of apple-y goodness in there. And we're also going to have to run a still, which is a little bit more obvious that we're doing something for educational purposes only that maybe is illegal, because it is distillation. There's a myth running around the Internet that what I'm about to tell you how to do is not illegal. It's not true. It is illegal to concentrate alcohol in any home-made alcoholic beverage through any process, including what we would call icing or ice distillation, is illegal, probably in your state and definitely at the federal level. That said, there are people on YouTube making moonshine on their stovetops, and I haven't heard of any of them being raided. You do what you want with that information. So the way we make Applejack is first we make apple cider, or apple wine, you can call it really either one, so we ferment apple juice. And I did a whole show on that, so you can go listen to that. Then we go and we take our apple juice, and we subject it to below freezing temperatures. And over time what we do is we remove ice from it and discard it. The ice is mostly water, leaving behind alcohol and apple goodness. Doing it in a freezer can be challenging. The reason it was done in the past, and this is a very British thing, they'd make these huge giant barrels of apple cider, and some of it wouldn't be so good tasting. So you just take this big giant barrel and you leave it out in your, your barn, and the cold weather comes in, and it just barely starts to freeze. And the farmer goes in to do his daily stuff in the barn and looks in, and hey, there's a little ice on top of there. Well, you take a strainer and you discard the ice. And because it, it gets colder, as, as it gets colder, the alcohol is coming up. So as it's colder, more and more will freeze, and more and more can be removed. This is kind of a natural process. And because the season slowly goes below freezing, gets colder, 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 and then warmer by spring, by spring you end up with maybe a half to a third of a barrel of this apple brandy that's been distilled down with ice. And because it was this gentle process of going down in temperature, it didn't freeze solid on you at the beginning. So... Can you do it with a freezer? Yes. And there's a couple different ways to do it. There's a couple different ways to do it. 
One way is you just put it in a five-gallon bucket, leave some headspace, put it in a chest freezer, and you gotta keep checking it. You, because your, your chest freezer is probably somewhere down around like 10 degrees or maybe even below zero. It might be down at like five degrees. Where, you know, a good cold night outside your temperature, you know, your first frost and freezes might be in like the 25 degree weather, which I don't think most people keep their freezer at 25 degrees. You want to go to a deeper cold in your freezer, freeze things faster, etc. So what you can do to mitigate that you'll get a little over freezing in the beginning is you get a colander, right? Just a standard mesh colander. And you skim when you get lots of ice, you skim with that. And then you take like a... Um, a wooden spoon or something and push down on the ice and kind of squeeze it out. And the ice will end up to like a pure white color because the apple goodness and the alcohol will melt before the water does. And you'll get to a point where it just stops freezing. And then you've reached the limit based on how cold your freezer is as to how high you can take the alcohol and how much apple jack you can make. This is one way to do it. Here's another way to do it. Don't even ask me how I know this, because I don't know how I know this. You take something like two-liter soda bottles, and you put your apple cider in the two-liter soda bottles. You leave a good amount of headspace so that it doesn't blow out the top or what have you, and you put it down in your chest freezer or your regular freezer. Now realize, you're going to end up with a lot less than you started with when you do this. So this is something more for your five-gallon batches, if, if for educational purposes only, than your one-gallon batches. Because um, usually with a one-gallon batch, you end up with about three-quarters of a gallon of finished product, and then you know you go from there, you're going to end up with a little tiny flask of this stuff. So you, you just put it into two-liter soda bottles, and you free, let it freeze. Let it freeze all the way through. Now, your two-liter soda bottle has a little hole, and you got a great big ice chunk in there. Now, don't let it freeze until the point that it's a solid, you can beat somebody to death with a chunk. But pretty much, it's really frozen. It's really, it, it, it'll give a little, right? So you got to keep an eye on it, and you'll learn how long it takes for your, your apple cider, your apple wine to do this. And then get a five-gallon bucket and, and put like three or four of them together in the bucket upside down. As it begins to melt, the apple goodness and the, um, the alcohol will melt and, and come out of the solution much faster. As, basically what's happening is as the ice begins to melt, the, the apple goodness and the, uh, the, the ethanol come out of the ice first. And when your bottles get to where there's like snow white clumps of, of, of slush left in them and all of the stuff down in the bucket is this deep, rich, amber uh, apple goodness... With, with ethanol in it, you, you just take the bottles and let them melt in the sink and throw the ice away. That's another way to do it. Um, there's a lot of ways to do this. But that way is kind of a hands-off way, and it, it, it goes pretty quick. And the higher the alcohol you start with, the faster you'll get there. So if you I mean, you can't do this because it's illegal, right? But if you were going to do this, then you, you, you might you know, make a pretty high alcohol apple cider to start out with. You might go a little higher with your sugar. So where you might use to make like an apple vine, which is like a German apple wine that's higher than a conventional cider, usually around 7-8% alcohol, you might do 5 gallons of apple juice and 2 pounds of white sugar. Well, if you're going to target doing apple jack, you know, 
then what you might do is three pounds of sugar or two pounds of sugar and a pound of honey, right? Um, something like that. So I'm not saying you should do this, but I'm saying it can be done if you, if you get my drift. And this is just another way of creating a brandy-like product out of a fruit wine. And it doesn't have to be Applejack. It could be Blackberry Applejack. could be anything you wanted it to be. Now, let's talk about this, not so much from a way to do it or get around the system with it being for education. Why is it actually even a, a process that, let's say that it was totally legal to distill. Why would you do this versus distillation like a pot still? Because you will never retain the flavor and characteristics of the fruit or the wine or the brandy the way that you would with an ice distillation. You, you're always going to lose something when you do a true distillation. With this, you actually concentrate the apple flavor. And, and this would be something that you can make with poor quality apple or low-end apple juice and then with a pretty, pretty good end product because of what you're doing to it. So I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying you could do this. And it's a perfect time to tell you about a new YouTube series that I've just started. It's called Meads of the Week. I have embarked on a mission in 2016 to make at least one gallon of mead a week. I've been staying ahead of that power curve. Right now I have six gallons of mead made in the last two and a half weeks sitting on my desk in front of me uh, until they're ready to be racked and go upstairs for aging. And uh, I just did a video where I went through all of them. I also did a video, the first video really for the series, where I show you how to make a methylogen, which is an herbed mead. And it's my process for making mead using an electric kettle versus Michael Jordan's process using the coffee maker. And what I'm going to do from now, about once a week, and it might go two weeks occasionally, I'm just going to take all the meads that I've made, set them on the countertop, turn on the camera, and tell you what I've made, what's in it. And I'll also tell you things like, well, I'm racking this one this week, or I've racked this one, or I've bottled this one, or here's what this looks like, or here's a problem I ran into. But I'm not going to be doing, like, here's how to make mead again this week. Here's how to make mead again this week, because... The basic process is melting honey into water, adding some ingredients, and putting a balloon or an airlock on the bottle. But we'll be going through that. I think it'll be fun. I think people will enjoy it. And I'll have a link to the first two episodes in the show notes today. And it's really the first episode in one kind of introductory pilot, call it, that is how to make the mead. Because the meads of the week is just, just that, just meads of the week. So check that out. I think you'll enjoy that. And uh, if there's any ideas you have for a mead that you'd like to see me make, Give me an idea, because I'm now like going, what else can I put into mead? For those who don't know what mead is, because you haven't heard the shows on it, it is a wine-like product, but it's made with honey versus uh, grapes. Though you can put mead, honey, and grapes together into a thing called a piment. Or you can put fruits, like I have a blackberry in front of me right now that I'm looking at fermenting away, and that would be a melamol. If you do a herbed mead, it's a methylogen. There's all kinds of different names for this stuff, but in the end, as Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer, says, it's all mead. It's all mead. Uh, I am going to tell you real quick about a mead that I'm going to try to make next week, as soon as all my stuff gets here, because I ordered it. Uh, ap orange blossom honey is really a favorite of mead makers, because there's this kind of unique characteristic of citrus brightness that comes through. I am going to make a mead using orange blossom honey, actual orange blossom petals, and some other cool stuff. We'll talk about that in Meads of the Week. Otherwise, I'm going to sign off for the day. I hope you enjoyed today's show, 
and I'm going to play a song for you that I love. Somebody said, hey, you might want to consider this song. I thought, I love that song. I don't know if I've ever played it for you before. I know I've talked about it on the air before. It's by uh, Warren Zevin, one of my favorite guys of all time, and it's called Roland the Thompson Gunner. And I'm just going to let you listen to the song. It's a very interesting narrative, and it's based on kind of the way governments work and the way they shouldn't work and betrayal and things like that. But the last line of the song requires a little bit of knowledge, so I'll explain it so when you hear it, maybe it drives it home. It, it is, Patty Hearst heard the burst of Roland's Thompson gun and bought it. And it, it, it sounds like, you know, bought it like he bought the farm when he got shot, you know, like he did, you bought it, you died, right? Well, if you know a little bit about history in the 70s and the, uh, what went on with Patty Hearst, Patty Hearst was... Uh, first kidnapped and abducted and then took part in a robbery and other activities with a group that called themselves the Sibonese Liberation Army. And uh, this was a very well-to-do person that probably wanted nothing to do with these people when they took her and got a bit of the Stockholm Syndrome and, and, and ended up like actively, and she's not dead, she didn't bought it. Um, she's still around, she's 61 years old today. Not today, like this date, but that's how old she is as of right now. Um, and she's kind of gone back to a normal life after this whole thing went and was closed down. And she was actually charged with criminal behavior, etc. Uh, I think she actually did some jail time for it, but was given some leniency considering the whole yeah Stockholm thing and stuff like that. So when you, you hear that line, what you have to realize is what bought it means. It means to, to have bought into it. And what this whole song's really about is all of us, whether we buy into something like one group struggling to control things from the outside as rebels or our own government trying to buy into it. We, we, we've bought it. And, and we really don't have to buy it. We can think for ourselves and independently. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. a warrior from the land of the midnight sun with a Thompson gun for hire fighting to be done the deal was made in Denmark on a dark and stormy day so he set out for Biafra to join the bloody fray through 66 and 7 they fought the Congo on their triggers knee deep and gore days and nights they battled the band to to their knees they killed to earn their living and to help out the Congolese Roland the Thompson Gunner Roland the Thompson Gunner Fought beside him, Van Owen and the rest. But of all the Thompson gunners, Roland was the best. So the CIA decided they wanted Roland dead. That son of a bitch, Van Owen, blew off Roland's head. Roland the 
headless body stalking through the night in the muzzle flash of Roland's Thompson gun. In the muzzle flash of Roland's Thompson gun. The continent for the man who'd done him in. He found him in Mombasa in a ballroom drinking gin. Roland aimed his Thompson gun. He didn't say a word, but he blew out Owen's body from there to Johannesburg. Roland, the headless Thompson gunner. Ten years later, but it still keeps up the fight. In Ireland, in Lebanon, in Palestine, in Berkeley. 